Welcome to Eminent Americans, a podcast about the people, nodes, and paradigms that make up the contemporary American intellectual scene. I'm your host, Daniel Oppenheimer, a writer and self-anointed intellectual based in Austin, Texas. This podcast was recorded about a week before its subject, Andrea Longchu, was awarded the 2023 Pulitzer Prize for criticism. So that doesn't come up in the conversation with my guest, Blake Smith, but I think it's interesting to keep in mind as he and I analyze True and try to understand the particular role she plays in the broader intellectual and journalistic ecosystem. So our story begins in early 2018 when the hipster intellectual magazine N Plus One published a long essay titled On Liking Women. The essay, which went rather viral, was about the author's transition to being a woman, her fascination with the 1967 radical tract The Scum Manifesto. It was about the dynamics of sissy porn and the author's complicated feelings about wanting to be a woman, wanting women, and the universal fear of being feminized. Its author, Andrea Long Chu, was at the time a doctoral student in comparative literature at NYU and in all respects uh, entirely unfamous. The essay would change that rather dramatically. Here's Chu in 2022 talking to Emily Ratajkowski. You also have gotten like a lot of angry emails, right? I do get angry emails. From people, from trans people. From trans people, from queer people. Like occasionally, you know, I get turfs sometimes. Yeah. In a sense, this whole thing has already played out, right? Because it's it's like we've seen this happen with other minority groups that are moving into a cultural space. It's like, what do we talk about with each other versus what do we talk about with everyone else? So after the New York Times piece came out, this is an op-ed that was basically like, you know, I don't know that my bottom surgery is going to improve anything in terms of like how I feel. Mm -hmm. In this case, I actually, I don't know why I didn't expect the kind of negative criticism that it got, but I didn't. And so then it came out and, and people some of this is just the ebb and flow of Twitter, right? The like the right the right kind of blue checks were like this is bad, and so the other blue checks didn't post about it or whatever. In the way that Tanasi Coates was for a time the black intellectual, and Wesley Yang was the Asian intellectual, Chu became and perhaps remains the trans intellectual of the moment. Later that year, she wrote another splashy piece, "My New Vagina Won't Make Me Happy," for the New York Times. Her, 29, her 2019 book, Females, got an immense amount of attention. And in 2021, she was hired as a staff critic for New York Magazine. And in that role, has written a series of buzzed about reviews. She's not famous exactly, but she's almost as close to it as journalists get. She's now friends, for instance, with the genuinely famous Ratajkowski, whom she profiled in the New York Times Magazine. And she says to Ratajkowski a bit later in that interview, some of this success was a matter of timing. There was a space waiting to be filled. Trans issues had gotten big in the culture, and while there were a lot of good trans memoirs out there, an increasing number of trans people make a name for themselves in the influencer space, there was neither an intellectual nor a magazine feature writer who'd yet made a name for him or herself reliably and stylishly explaining the trans thing to the world. Chu has been able to step into this space so successfully, I think, for a few reasons. She's a stylish writer. She has a command of the relevant theory, and she has that thing that so many it boys and girls of journalism have had over the years— She's a tease. She comes close and dances away. She reveals and withholds. She issues grand pronouncements and then implies that she's kidding. Maybe. I've been reading and listening to Chu recently, and I find myself atypically confused. I honestly don't know precisely what she's trying to say about gender and sexuality and sex and politics, nor whether she actually believes whatever it is she's trying to say. 
I don't know if she's the real deal or like so many it boys and girls of the past, she's performing a role that is ultimately too disconnected from a genuinely grounded self to write things that are meaningful. To help me process my confusion, I'm joined by Blake Smith, who recently wrote a highly critical piece on Chu for Tablet Magazine. Officially, Blake is an historian of modern France, coming off of a Fulbright in North Macedonia and before that a PhD from Northwestern. Unofficially, but more relevantly for our purposes, he's been writing up a storm of highly intellectual, but also, in my opinion, very accessible essays over the past few years for a variety of publications, uh, most often tablet, where the Chu piece was published. These These essays fall into a few different buckets, I'd say. One is what I'd call his ongoing project to identify potential intellectual and creative resources for the redemption of liberalism. This project is manifested in critical essays on various eminent and obscure European and American intellectuals, including folks like Michel Foucault, Philip Reif, Judith Schklar, Leo Strauss, Jacob Taubes, and Roland Barthes. Another of Blake's buckets is his criticism of woke thinking and writing, and a third is his interest in queer theory. His Chu piece falls into both of the latter buckets, although Chu has a complicated relationship to wokeness. She's, she's neither a sort of embodiment of it, um, nor an entirely a straight-up critic of it, though someone who disquiets some people who might be considered safely in the woke camp. This piece may overlap with the first two, having to do with the, the resurrection, the redemption of liberalism, uh, though that's not as obvious a connection, but maybe it's something Blake and I We'll talk about. So, Blake, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. And before we get into it, I just want to read something of yours, not from the Chu piece, but something that I think is both hilarious and, and rather relevant to the Chu. It's the opening of your recent piece on the queen of queer theory, as you call her, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. So you write, there are at least two sorts of women who love gay men in a way that makes gay men like me nervous. Camille Pagli is one of the best known representatives of the first sort along with those other Italian-American celebrity fruit flies, Madonna and Lady Gaga. These are energetic, pretentious, pop-cultured women who imagine gay men as their creative and interesting counterparts. The second kind, stereotypically nerdy, mousy, and frumpy sweater-wearing, loves gays not as a gaggle of chattering slags who support her self-conception as someone sexy and scandalous, but rather from the safe distance of books. These women read and often write about gay men and gay sex in an intellectualized fantasy through which they escape their own sexuality. Why young women of this type increasingly purport to be gay men and pursue surgery in an attempt to make themselves so is a mystery for another time. Maybe this is this time or maybe that's something you're writing on. (laughs) But But I guess, you know, where I want to start, Blake, is is maybe before we get to, to Chew, you know, can you talk about this Sedgwick piece and kind of the motive for writing it. And, and I think sort of partially why I'm interested in that is you talk a lot about her discussion of, of, of typing people and the kind of inevitability of typing people and the dangers of how typing people creates or reinforces hierarchies and, and what solutions are to sort of to that dilemma. And I guess I'm interested in that in the context of just my larger project, which I think is a typing project. But I'm also interested in the sense of like, is true a type? Are you a type? Am I a type? You know, and and, and what are of those? The Cedric piece starts with me doing some typing and looking at what the reaction on Twitter was to this. Many, many people hated this, although also many people felt like seen in a negative way, right? Especially Mm. people who, I I don't think anyone uh, responded negatively on the basis of identifying with the former category, but many people in the latter category yeah. were like, you know, no, this is violent, this is disgusting. And the point of that, I mean, one, it was sort of 
fun to write. And I think also there's some truth to it, but was to show like, look, like we can do this thing. We can do this, this uh, act of typing. Like we can, you know, constellate like these kind of figures out of our social world. And in fact, I mean, we do this all the time. Like if you look on Twitter, there was like a, a heyday of type of guy discourse. Like I've just invented a new type of guy, like the kind of guy who, who, who does, does this. this. Yeah. Um, and often we can be really compelled by like, the type of guy sketch that someone will tweet out, even though we've never met such a person, right? Like we don't even know that they are out there in the social world, but there's something that's really pleasurable about the identification, about the skill of creating this compelling kind of figure. And actually like, I mean, if we think about the history of literature, like Theophrastus or La Bruyere, like these these books that are uh, full of types, like uh, go really far back in the literary canon. And Sedgwick in Epistemology of the Closet is really, really in a way the book is about this phenomenon of typing and both what's pleasurable about it um, and how this is sort of what sustains our interest in other people. This is a lot of what our conversation is. This is a lot of the enjoyment of the great novels like Austen and Proust, but it's also the basic mechanism of, of persecution. So, you know, she's thinking about like homophobia directed to gay men, but she also, you know, I argue in the essay is thinking about, you know, anti-Semitism. Um, and it makes sense in the late eighties to think of these as really conjoined. And, you know, she was born, I think in 50 or 52, mm-hmm. um, you know, she, she's of that generation of people, right, where she's, she can both imagine the mass death of gay men, like in the Reagan administration, but also, you know, you know, whatever her parents are telling her about the Holocaust. And so, like, the stakes are real. Like, you know, it, it's not that, like, persecution is, is uh, just, you know, calling people bad names, but also the basic mechanism of persecution, like identifying other people as something, getting a hold on them intellectually in this way, also seems inseparable from the most basic kinds of enjoyments of our everyday life, right? And, and, and the enjoyments to, of intellectual life, right? Of, of critical life right, as well. Right, yeah, this is right. What, this is what theory is, right? Yeah. That like, oh, you think that you're X, but I see that you are a member of the bourgeoisie, right? right? Or I see that you're a classic neurotic. I mean, a lot of what's going on in her most famous essay, Paranoid Reading and, and Reparative Reading, is to diagnose as a paranoid exercise in typing all of the grand theory of the, the 19th and 20th century that, you know, and, and she's right that in a way, like part of the, what's enjoyable about Marx and Freud and, you know, uh, any of the others is that we can identify someone else's argument or text or, or persona as a case of a type. Um, so like, oh, I'm, I'm familiar with this kind of thing. One, you don't know what you are. I know what you are. Like, I know what your, your argument is in a way that you don't. And I already know what to think about it, how to deal with it. So it, it has this really pleasurable kind of mastery and both a, a power over you and a power over like the phenomenon. Yeah, and, and let and, me just interrupt you. Like, like I want to, because I think this will come back around to true and I think it also probably come back around. So I want to ask you, you know, what type are you? But before I get to that, I just want your backstory, just in kind of an old school biographical yeah, um, way. Like so. tell, tell me where you come from and then we'll, we'll, we'll bring it up to what your type is and then and then why you're curious in writing about these things and then what role sort of Chu plays as a foil for you? It was strange to realize like uh, actually Chu and I have a lot biographically in common. Um, I am four fourths instead of three fourths white, but otherwise you know we're both like you know upper middle class uh, educated parents in the South in a conservative evangelical environment. If you had seen the movie The Blind Side, pretty much all white suburban 
evangelical. Like I grew up in a neighborhood without any black people, Catholics, Jews, in in what probably, like I, I don't know what it's like now, was like the last expression of a sort of straightforward kind of Confederate thing. Like there's like photos of me dressed as a Confederate soldier for Halloween. Um, as, you know, so, so I, one, without I like, that kind of, without any anxiety, without any like, a, without any awareness that this might be problematic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as, as my mom said a few years ago, like, you know, we didn't mean anything hateful by it. Right. Um, but right. I mean, we had like Confederate memorabilia in the house. Um, Where was this? Like a, you didn't actually say. Um, uh, Memphis, oh, just Memphis. outside of Memphis. I rebelled against all of that, went to a small liberal arts college in Arkansas, Hendricks College, which, which is sort of an idyllic liberal arts experience. It had like an 80% acceptance rate, so no one is worried about achievement or anything. Um, it was just sort of the weirdos of the greater Arkansas area, you know, hanging out, smoking a lot of pot. And I mean, to me, that's the, yeah, that's the ideal education. I mean, I, I sort of, if, if I want to fight on behalf of anything, it would be that, you know, the world be as much like that as possible. <laughs> like Hendricks Scholar. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, at 3 p.m., like the, the day is done, go out into the woods, smoke pot, listen to stuff, John Stevens. But we have to fight to make that world uh, possible. I mean, I feel very fortunate that I was able to have mentors in undergrad who made it possible for me to get into grad school and then have such a career as I have had as an academic, my scholastic performance was never amazing. And since I didn't do anything else that would uh, you know, <laughs> qualify as being interesting to a college admissions board. So when you, you grew up in an evangelical Protestant household, it was mm -hmm. the, the, the culture in which you swam. But was it, you know, was it a family where there was a lot of explicit reference to, to Jesus and you thought about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, so yeah. There, oh, you guys God. were for yeah. I, mean, I mean, you were. How to put it? I mean, you know, in middle school, I was sort of discovering that I don't, in fact, believe the thing that everyone intensely at least performs believing. And so in a way, I mean, being gay was like terrible, but also redundant. Like if I had been sort of straight, but bookish and non-believing, I would also have had to leave my community. I would have had the same kind of problems with my parents. I would have been, uh, you know, I mean, it's very sort of like portrait of the artist as a young man. I mean, man. the way you're talking about it leads me to believe that it wasn't an experience of self-loathing, which one so often, you know, reads about in young gay folks who grew up in intensely religious, that they internalized the homophobia in a way that was self-loathing. I, I don't want to like speak for you, but... I mean, like middle school, high school, my problem is much more that like, you know, I had read like Nietzsche and Ayn Rand, and I believed that, I mean, I guess as many teenagers do, that I was in sole possession of this truth that would annihilate everyone around me and that they were too like, stupid or cowardly to confront. Then to walk oneself back from that, right? To be like, well, in fact, I, I am maybe not the unique vessel for thinking on earth. I don't need to be in a role of wake up sheeple. Not that I escape that in my current writing. I mean, you, can, you can see me lapsing back into that mode. At a certain point, I realized like, there's not like an imaginable future for me in my community, right? There's not a way for me to keep being myself. It could be that like, I would want to be a painter and I would still have the same problem, right? In the past couple of years, I have started going to church again. I'm, I'm an Episcopalian, which is, you know, I don't know if you have familiar are with the caste structure of Christianity, but... Um... <laughs> no, I know that, that we, my, my, I'm Jewish. My wife is, is, was raised Catholic and sometimes she still likes to go to mass on Christmas Eve, and sometimes we go to the Unitarians, and sometimes we go to the Episcopalians, and we right. used that's to go to the Catholics. Yeah, and, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's exactly why this exists. Right. Yeah, right. It's, it's, so everyone it, is well, either... I mean, the Episcopalians, that's gay church, right? Well, the Unitarians maybe are gay church, but, you know... Right, so, no, no, it, it, it's it's gay church, and it's very, like, fussy and smells and bells. I go to, a, I go to like, Anglo-Catholic 
high mass. You know, it, it it's great. You know, the, the evangelical uh, sort of blackmail is like you must really know that you believe this. Otherwise, you don't belong here. You don't, you don't get to stay around if you're not like 100% on board, right? Getting, uh, you know, since I started grad school, like having close Jewish friends who have like a complicated relationship with belief or like from one week to another, like what they, what they think it all means and what they think they're doing, you know, can be changing quite a lot. But it's okay to like, you know, check in from time to time with services, um, like that's, that's been, yeah, really helpful to like have access to that, right. That I can just claim this as mine and that I don't have to be, this is what the Baptist draw is asking one to do, like give an account of oneself. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, this is also I mean, there's, part of there's, my... there's Jewish blackmail too, right. It's just a different, it's a, it's of a different sort and I'm not sure I could articulate it, but I know I feel it. Well, I mean, I love that. Uh, I write for tablet without being Jewish because, <laughs> you know, I don't want to have a fucking opinion about Israel. You yeah, know, like, right. Yeah, exactly. God, you know, God help you people with yeah. your problems. I'm happy to be on board, <laughs> but like, I'm glad that I don't, and no one asks me, right. They're, they're never going to call me up a tablet and be like, like, we'd really love your opinion. I'd be like, no, like, uh, I mean, we will come back to you, but to, to transition to chew, give me a little capsule kind of early biography of her, because this is important to your piece, you know, and interestingly, you did that thing that I like to do sometimes, which is you go back into the sort of juvenilia, you know, and, and find some kind of interesting shit and kind of dredge it up. And as a kind of like Rosetta Stone, <laughs> it's a little unfair, but it's, but it's, you know, it's fun. Uh, and, and, and probably just in a certain way, if, if done properly. With um, Chu, I mean, it, it's amazing because, yeah, this 2018 moment when she really uh, you know, suddenly took off. And I, I didn't look that much at the broader reception, but um, for like a year or so, she was being asked by everywhere to give interviews, like everywhere from the point. And uh, Tabla had me take out like a, a particularly nasty kind of phrase about how dumb Anastasia Berg's um, <laughs> interview with, with her is. But you she's... really are dedicated to just burning every possible bridge that <laughs> would enable you to have a career as, as, as a journalist. You know, I, I'll never forgive her for what she said about Agamben at the beginning of COVID. So that's my that's my personal jihad. Um, I, you know, I'm not afraid of Anastasia uh, uh, Burke, but but everyone from the point to Vanity Fair to N plus one, you know, was uh, just like blowing smoke up shoes. But during this period, everyone wanted to interview her, and and they would let her say just crazy things in the answers, and then you know keep going. So there's a lot of interesting documentation about uh, her past that now doesn't appear in her writing. We talked about, I mean, she was raised in, was it in North Carolina? She was raised in North Carolina. She was yeah. raised in a sort of conservative Christian household. I think she gave this interview, this oral history to the New York Public Library. She talked about what kind of kid she was. And I mean, it was kind of standard issue, sort of nerdy kid, right? I mean, she Theater liked- kid, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a critical element of the, the well, typing, right? The human type, type I mean, the theater kid. She was a theater kid. She liked science fiction and fantasy. She was very shy. But I didn't get the sense, and I don't think she claimed- that as a kid had a particularly complicated or intense relationship to her sexuality or gender. I mean, she certainly didn't think of it in those terms, right? What she says is there had been this Christian sexual guilt, which I mean, you don't have to even be religious as a horny young boy to be feeling like terrible over every boner. And then basically in college, she learns about feminism and like, you know, on the one hand is like becoming a atheist, progressive, whatever, but also is just taking that sexual guilt and relabeling it as feminism. Right. Um, and it's out of that, like at least in her narrative, like it's out of a feminist 
male self-hatred that a fascination with femininity, like as something that she would want to be able to access in a guilt-free way, right, um, yeah. begins to come about. And this is also like the, the addiction to this kind of pornography in which scenarios of men being brainwashed into becoming hyper-feminine women. What, what's been interesting is her whole description of this, basically saying, right, like her transition is not something that is motivated by a lifelong or a kind of investment in the project of living as a woman that began in childhood or even in adolescence. It's not this story, which is, I think, a much more conventional one. Yep. Um, it's really a highly sexualized one that grows out of both a theoretical and moral interest in feminism and like a sexual fascination with this genre of pornography. Why that story was so appealing to like, the New York Times and N plus one and um, like the whole kind of left liberal spectrum. That's a big, yeah. I mean, that's a big question for me. So I'm just thinking, so, you, you know, so she goes to, I just want to kind of biographically bring us up to 2018. So she goes to Duke, she's kind of discovered, she gets into theory. Uh, Duke is kind and of Duke's a, a good place to good, do that. A yeah. good place to do that gets into theory. And then one of her, you know, in her own telling, one of her professors at Duke says, you know, you're applying to graduate school, right? And she says, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And then that professor kind of handholds her into graduate school at NYU in comparative literature. So she moves right. to New York, I think, right after undergrad. She moves to New York. She's in her 20s. Um, she's working on, I'm not sure if she says what her dissertation was on, but she finishes her sort of the didactic part of her program. She's working on her dissertation, whatever it's about. And then uh, she knows, I, I think as she puts it, she knows somebody who knows somebody at N plus one. And I think in the meantime, and, and I'm, I don't have a clear narrative in my head of kind of the arc of, of the trans issue sort of rising to the fore of our cultural consciousness. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think I was, by that I, point- I was out of the country. You know, so I, I think I, by I, that I point it had, I think maybe Caitlin, the Caitlyn Jenner stuff had happened. I think I think it was it was, it was was hot. And I don't mean to diminish in that, in that sense, but it just in a standard kind of journalistic cultural way- being trans was hot. It was interesting. Oh, there was the show on Amazon, Transparent. That was a big deal. Uh, right, and yeah. so somehow she pitched them. They reached out to her. Um, I think she was in the process at that point of undergoing a transition. And she writes this piece for N plus one, what is it called? Unliking Women. Um, and I'm not sure she had published anything in a kind of non-academic context before then. Maybe she had, but it wasn't anything. Uh, except for these things for the Duke. Except student. for these things for the Duke. <laughs> For the Duke paper, and she also, I think, in her oral history of the public library, said she was a kind of constant letter writer to the Duke student oh, newspaper. Yeah. And you know, I tried to find those comments, oh, but you know, those, those are not those are part probably of the great. Um, so she writes this piece, and and I have a very hard time summarizing and th- synthesizing what she's saying in these big pieces in that one, and then the book she writes. But 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 I trust that you're going to be more efficient at that than I am. <laughs> you know, if you had to characterize that. N plus one piece in 2018, the one that led to sort of everybody, Vanity Fair and N plus one, and then the New York Times running this op-ed of hers, so really becoming a kind of it, it girl of the moment. How would you characterize that piece? Well, I mean, basically she introduces straight progressive people to autogynophilia. Um, to, to this, this, yeah. Which is what? This, this particular understanding of a kind of transness in which what would be motivating someone to transition is a libidinal investment in a fantasy of femininity, right? So there's this guy, Ray Blanchard, who has sort of bizarre taxonomy of different kinds of transness and what his own 
uh, interest in this is, you know, I, I, I don't know, but this is one of the kinds that he identifies. And I think, right, people outside of this particular uh, niche um, had not, you know, been exposed to this. But importantly, and, you know, to draw, I think, the important distinction, this is as distinct from maybe what we would say is the kind of traditional or canonical story of the trans person, which is which is a kind of experience typically from a very young age of being in the wrong body. Um, and I'm not, I mean, and, and nuance that if you, if you, if you need to, because I think once you get into sort of, you know, Freudian or whatever other theories of, you know, libidinal investments and things like that, saying, feeling like you're in the wrong body is a kind of inadequate explanation of, of what we're talking about. But I think that there's a distinction that, that you're drawing or that she's drawing between different. Right. That's, that's one way we couldn't, could make this distinction. We could also say there's, there's a distinction between something like, you know, this is a, a form of life that I'm sort of compelled to participate in. And then really leaning into the erotic dimension of the investment. I mean, you know, I think for most, especially trans women, there's a kind of like specter haunting their, you know, public self-narration, which would be that you'd be accused of being like a fetishist, of, of fetishizing femininity. So a lot of their respectability politics, you know, has, has to do with like disclaiming this. And, you know, I think that totally makes sense. And Chu very self-consciously in this essay and her other early writings says like, you know, this is a story that other people aren't brave enough to tell. I am the one who is able to admit this. And, you know, I think there's a lot of you know, pushback within that community and, and resentment of her, you know, taking on this role. And but part of what's interesting is like, so she does this on the one hand, right, where she's sort of, let's say, leaning into this like specter um, that, that many trans women would be concerned about, but also saying, and it's fine there, right? So, so you know, like I am an autogynophile and it's fine and it's actually like brave and interesting, and then in a third move, I mean, this then recurs in her more recent writing about Asian-Americanness or writing about what she calls the mixed Asian, is to say that this identity that I have so richly fantasized and then staged my fantasy of in public is actually nothing, is a nullity. So females is really complicated, but it sort of is swinging between male self-hatred and like feminist guilt and like fetishistic investment in femininity and saying to, to be a woman is to be like just a whole, is to be you know, a nothing, is to be a, a kind of like fuckable zero. And this is also like when she talks about uh, Asian-ness, um, she talks about it as blankness, as nothing, that like there is no Asian American culture, that there's nothing in that. I mean, one, there's something weirdly interesting. I went back and looked at Wes Yang's Souls of Yellow. Yeah, that's it's, yeah, that's what popped into my head. I mean, it echoes with that. I mean, I would say, and I haven't read her stuff on on Asianness. It certainly is similar in some broad strokes to what Yang was talking about. He's a much more concrete writer, I think, and sort of lucid one in certain ways than she is. Well, but but he he says much the same stuff that like I look at my face in the mirror and it's nothing. It's yeah. an unlovable void, which I don't think is the Asian American experience um, for like, all, you know, I'm sure some of them like their faces. I don't, my, 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 my partner is, uh, is Asian. You, you know, let me, and I, and I want to get into the sort of more theoretical stuff too, but I actually want to stop for a second and, and go back to sort of this question of the role. And you, you, you started to talk about this, you know, what she was doing for the sort of progressive media or the progressive reader 
but the role that Chu played in the larger intellectual discourse. And in my intro, you know, what I said in a way that was broader than what you said with this question of kind of autogynophilia or a particular type of trans experience. I was just saying in a, in a blanket sense, and I'm not sure this is true, but I was saying it, you know, that there was just a hole that like a broader hole that hadn't been filled. We didn't have the Wesley Yang of trans. And that that is a that is a role to be filled. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. It's just a kind of the operation of our sort of journalistic sort of intellectual economy, which is you know, particularly when there is a, you know, increased interest in the experience of a particular culture or subgroup or anything, you know, there becomes a, a sort of a space opens up for somebody who can who can talk about it in a way that is compelling to whether it's the readers or the editors or whomever, like these this particular audience of magazines and journals and so on. I mean, is that do you see it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think her self understanding is right about this. That there was like, you know, there's probably one spot. I, I read like Sandra Cisneros talk in interviews about that there would be room for like one Latino woman in like the emerging multicultural canon, and she happened to get it, and then like that's weird because then everyone is mad at you. But I think for uh, trans stuff, the stakes are pretty high. Yeah, right. The New York Times piece, especially my new vagina won't make me happy, where she does the same kind of double move, right? Where like. I really want a vagina and not in the way that one is usually said to be wanting it if, if one is like a trans woman. And I don't think that being a woman will be this like new form of life that will you know make me happy, that will be good for me. Like rejecting the kind of it gets better narrative yep. that um, you know gays have been using. I mean, she literally which, says it's a wound, right? I mean, that is some yeah, provocative yeah. fucking language, right? I mean, which, like, which all feels somehow very like daring to appropriate this kind of transphobic language. And then ends by condemning like medical gatekeeping. Like I shouldn't be denied it just because it won't make me happy. And just because I'm actually having more suicidal ideation. I mean, there are many debates within this community and within like the larger world about like who should be getting this procedure under what circumstances. But this bold combination of moves, like the thing won't work in the sense that the liberal progressive narrative says that it does work and that nevertheless I should be given it. Um, so, like the the outcome remains the liberal progressive. That's one. right. Like, well, and I, I mean, I think that's a move that that she she deploys in a kind of variety of ways. I, I'm trying to remember if it was in the N plus one essay or in females or something. But there's a long discussion of turfs, sort of trans exclusionary radical feminists, sort of critics from a feminist perspective of some of the sort of trans uh, activist ideology that is that is utterly dismissive of them. Uh, and contemptuous in a way that that that, as you said, is the sort of progressive outcome, but the sort of means by which she arrives at that is different. I want to go back to this, and I do think there was clearly a time or or long periods of time in the American intellectual discourse when there was room for only one or one or two or something like that. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think there's room for more than one. I think what is often underestimated is how hard it is. You also have to speak the pretty complicated language of these magazines. The number of people who can do that in the country is probably in the hundreds or something. In the time when there can only be one of the category, the one that like the you know white, straight, liberal, progressive media wants is someone who's insane writing really overwrought, hyperventilating stuff, shattering certain intellectual taboos, but landing back in the liberal progressive space and saying, I mean, I think there's a kind of alignment between Tennessee Coates, 
popularized Afro-pessimism, like things really aren't going to get better, they can't get better for us, and like Obama won't save us and my vagina won't make me happy. Somehow, you know, people who subscribe to The New Yorker and The Atlantic, like tote bag people, they, they feel very happy with a member from a, a, a marginalized group performing intellect in this pessimistic and purple prose writing way. Um, I'm surely transparently envious uh, that I, you know, I'm not myself anointable, but... I'm, I'm trying to think of my response to that. So I was reading Coates from very early on, from when he was first sort of blogging on his own blog. And, and I was just reading these being, you know, excerpted by particularly Andrew Sullivan, who I was reading at the time. And I actually think he was quite good. There was a kind of hyperbolicness to his writing, but I, but I think he got worse. I mean, the last thing he wrote for The Atlantic was this piece on Kanye West that was really over the top. I'm less cynical than you in the sense I don't think I think the implication of the way you just described it is that it's a it's a kind of performance for for a white audience and and, and true I have mixed feelings as I've said a few times I I don't think she's great but I think she has chops in a way. I mean, even going back to that Duke piece, that is a very precociously written piece. That is way better than anything I wrote when I was an undergrad, right? Like this is a bright person who has a way with language. I always describe this in psychological terms. Like it, it doesn't seem like it's coming from an authentically grounded self. Like there's a disconnection in her writing that I don't, that I... Well, even the Duke thing, which is like, I am a racist. It's like right. the, the title. It's searing and exciting. It's also like funny and I can't like they're like I oppress my girlfriend I oppress her every day I like do not listen to her it's like like it's so over the top like you can't imagine someone writing this like entirely seriously and then write a lot of her writing frustratingly but that's also maybe part of the compellingness has that quality of like I don't I don't know if this is a joke like I don't know what to do with this Aviv has this in a, in a certain way where, like, you don't know if it's meant to be mean or, like, you don't know quite how the thing is, is supposed to land. And that ambiguity is really compelling. Not many people have that. I just wrote something about what I initially thought were stupid but have decided are Rachel Aviv's, like, really brilliant profiles of Martha Nussbaum and Agnes Callard, where she does the opposite, where, like, Nussbaum apparently was really flattered by her profile enough so that everyone in her circle reappears in the Callard one and that people at Chicago didn't say, don't talk to this Rachel Aviv, like she will destroy you. Yeah, she presents the women's self-image, but in a way that makes it look ridiculous. That I don't know whether people would prefer that to like being positively evaluated, but in a way that doesn't actually confirm your self-image as someone who's like actually doing contrarian thinking and who's outside of the mainstream or you so know who you has some think, different perspective. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't know if I read the Nussbaum one. I, one. I did read the Callard one and, and certainly came away with a, a not entirely positive impression of her. And you think that was deliberate? You think that was deliberate on Aviv's part? So if you read the Nussbaum thing, it is structurally exactly the same, and it's maybe even better written. So and it's from like 2016, and many of the same people who come in as like character witnesses and friends in the Callard piece were also in the Nussbaum piece. So there's no way, like if Nussbaum didn't think that it was somehow flattering, even though it, like it, it's as insane as the Callard one, right? She comes off as bad shit. I don't know if Callard has like made a statement about, you know, what she thinks, but it must've been at least the first time that people thought it was positive enough that they were all willing to go for another round. Like they weren't like, get this woman off campus. I haven't read her other work, though, so I don't know what Aviv's deal is. Yes, I agree with you, but it's a different kind of 
it's not a put on. I mean, it's not a like, maybe I'm just fucking with you thing, which is which is what what Chu does. She's just like everybody's female, females, the kind of existential condition of, as you say, being a whole, being vulnerable. Like, does she believe that? Like, that's that is a well, is a structure that she thinks it's useful to work within at a minimum. This, this is maybe a sort of school marmish academic complaint on my part. But part of what's frustrating is that even those sorts of claims like Paul Preciado, uh, who is this like uh, Spanish trans man, queer theorist, uh, has an essay from years before, which is like also very funny and insane, um, where he talks about like, you know, our primary castration is having to move on from the anal stage, that we're not a- allowed to play with our butts anymore. And that like subjectivity is founded on the anus and its radical, filthy openness. And then moving toward the general, trying to get away from that is what being castrated is. And in that sense, like we're all bottoms and subjectivity <laughs> is like an attempt to cover over yeah. this fundamental openness that can never be quite closed um and that's like both ridiculous but there's also something like we're not like invulnerable subjects my attitude all towards all of this is is maybe sort of pragmatist in in i don't know if it's an erordian sense or something like that but it's like are these useful constructs right like are these useful constructs i mean i think of like when i read some of your stuff on like when you're like finding the kind of hidden kind of liberalism of, of leo strauss or something i mean you're doing these kind of deliberately somewhat kind of against the grain readings of these people. And I'm like, does, does Blake believe that's really what they're saying? Like, I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. I kind of think it doesn't matter. Like, I, it doesn't feel like I, it's not you're fucking with us. You're saying this is a useful sort of way to approach this text. And I think there's some value that so we can discover some value in doing this. That's just like standard intellectual practice right. to I, me I, I, and, I, and is justified know, or not based based on whether it ha- it produces the value you're hoping to produce, right? And and I you know, I think I would go crazy. I mean this may be just my childhood, but if I um if I'm thinking too much about what I believe, then I don't feel able to think. Yeah. I think maybe you know part of maybe choose particular insanity is that although in theory females is a commentary on the Solana scum manifesto it is clearly borrowing all of this thinking from people like Preciado. I, I mentioned Avatar Ronell, who like Chu did, I think, this really disgusting hit piece on in the Chronicle. How the Chronicle could publish this, I think that, that was really uh, reprehensible. But like she clearly read Ronell's work on the Sky Manifesto. She couldn't have not been thinking about it. And she's not like playing with others. The whole space is taken up by her provocative statements that then we can read like, oh, is it just a joke or not? But it's not, um, her writing is not a world populated by other people who are also making claims. And I mean, maybe that's a very academic way of understanding what writing should be doing, but writing has to include a couple of different voices. If, if it's just you being like oracular, very easy to be insane. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I- I think my attitude towards that is is always like the proof is in the pudding. Like, I don't want to preemptively exclude any technique. Like, yes, that is a kind of narcissistic technique in the sense of like, there's just not a lot of room for other people in that voice. But I'm sure if you and I thought about it a little bit, we could we could come up with writers we love who do that, right? And so, and so I don't want to sort of preemptively exclude it. I think for me is like, does it work? You know, and... And and that, I guess that brings me to sort of, and I, and I said this before, which is like some of your project, you're thinking through how do we answer or, or fail to answer some of those questions you say Sedgwick posed in her stuff, which is like, how do we find a way to, you know, how do we deal with types? 
how do we think about this in a meaningful kind of meaningful ethical way of how to be in our in our society today and I, and I think part of what you're saying I mean I think you it's it's pretty clear just from the sort of rather obvious disdain you have for Chu is that you don't think her answer is much of an answer. Yeah, I mean, the main subject of this interview that I thought was so dumb was um, Berg, where, like, I want things that are bad for me, which is a kind of, you know, insight uh, derived somehow from Berlant. I don't know. Of course, I want things that are bad for me. Well, how should I articulate those desires? How should I act on them? What is the form of life in which they are sustainable? I mean, I think part of my objection to Chu, Chu is borrowing a lot without acknowledging it from a kind of canon that I think of as like bottom series. So like people like Leo Bersani, Lee yeah. Edelman, uh, in a way also Preciado, who are emphasizing what like Bersani calls the, the self-shattering dimension of, uh, of sex, of, of sexuality, um, that it poses this risk to the ego, which is like, I mean, I don't, I don't know what like, if any, your interest in psychoanalysis is, but uh, I mean, you're writing about the role of sex in people's biographies yeah. is like, I, I think, you know, th- this is something that like you really powerfully illustrate. And on the one hand, that's an engine by which we can be remade, um, but also that like we can be destroyed by it. You know, what I hate about like Chu's work is that this is presented as somehow like novel and exciting. And this is like a, a, a bracing uh, admission that challenges like liberal progressive pieties, but like, yeah, of course, like I could want something that would like destroy me. I guess what I'm hearing, you know, in your orientation towards true is two things. One is, I mean, as a writer and an intellectual, you just annoyed when people, you were annoyed with both with a certain kind of bullshit. You're annoyed with the kind of what you perceive of as a kind of misinterpretation of certain kinds of thinkers. And you're annoyed when sort of what you think of as bullshit gets an enormous amount of attention you know, and so that's just purely in your sort of in your role as a and I, I mean, I and I'm, I'm saying your role as a writer. But of course, I have all of these experiences, too. Like they're the people who drive me nuts. They're probably swimming in the same pool I am, but they seem to be saying stuff that I think is bullshit or they're not saying it particularly well. And for some complicated set of reasons, they're being rewarded for it. And there's just a kind and of this is a person who is a lot like me. Yeah, right, right. So right. So it's important. She's swimming in the same pool as you are. She's a lot like you in a certain ways. You're probably roughly the same age. Um, she's younger than me. She's younger than me. Okay. But I mean, I don't have that relationship to her. So there's that kind of just that, there's the part of it that's just like, she pisses me off because of all of those things. And then I think there's the other part, which is the sort of like, you know, y- your political project. And I might be projecting, but I think this is very clear in that piece you wrote for American Affairs, which is like, you know, to to be very simplistic about it is like there's a way in which you're just an old school kind of social Democrat and you're sort of looking for. Great. I I hope, you know, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but it's a great protective label. Okay. well, you know, and I I, I, I read it whenever it came out. So it's a little bit fuzzy in my mind. But but I what you are politically is actually not that interesting in a way. And I don't I don't mean that as a criticism. I'm just saying you're not you were trying to figure out some novel ways to think about how that how those politics could be resuscitated. But the politics themselves we're pretty old fashioned in a way, right? Whether it's New Deal liberalism or social democracy or, you know, labor democracy or something like that, right? And and, and, and maybe this is another way I'm like, true, right? Where like, you know, I, I what, what ultimately I want to land on practically is not exciting. I mean, anyone who wants something exciting politically should probably be shot, right? Like those are people we don't need in our society. They're, they're, they're scary people. Um, but how... 
Yeah, but let me finish though. I was going to say, I think, and again, this is definitely projecting, but maybe it's true also, which is, I think you have an intuition or you have thoughts on the kinds of, to connect those two things, the kinds of writing that is more or less likely to increase the kind of available reservoir of solidarity or make this sort of collective project of social democracy more or less successful. And so I think to the extent, you know, I don't want to let you off the hook of like, just not liking true because she pisses you off, you know, because we all try and ground our sort of visceral, visceral distaste in some sort of political project. But I think there's also a sort of political project there, which is, you know, what she's doing isn't helpful in some way, or, or it, it's not yeah. only not helpful, yeah. it's maybe just sort of destructive or erosive of sort of what where we want to go politically, ethically, collectively. I mean, I, I don't think certainly it's helpful to, you know, trans women. I don't think it's helpful. Like, I, and I don't, I don't think the model of desire and what we should do with it is, I mean, this would, this would be an unsurvivable world if, you know, people were like really taking seriously um, her project. I mean, I think Part of maybe how I am very similar to her is I feel like a lot of my writing, you know, to the extent that we can have like an accurate understanding of what we're doing, stages my or someone else's like intense and dangerous commitments or receptivities, often ones that are like in contradiction with each other. And then when I... I somehow end um, with something like, well, and thus liberalism. Or, you know, <laughs> we need right. something to contain. That's right. Yeah. I think, you know, probably what Chu and I take from our evangelical background is that sense that like we're bad people and therefore I bet everyone else is pretty bad too. Um, I mean, the, the what particular politics might fall out of that can be different, but um, you know, there, there is well, a but I mean, that, I guess, you know, worth identifying. I mean, I think identifying the tradition because I think, you know, implicitly or explicitly, there is a sense that the role in your writing and a lot of these people's writing, there is a sense that the role of the maybe this is just what you're saying, the role of the liberal intellectual is to is to reach out and engage with 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 the darkness, you know, and and understand it and empathize with it and ultimately sort of process both sort of contain it, but sort of process it for for our society that, that, that unless there's sort of adequate mechanisms of processing these things in our society, whether it's stand-up comedy or pop culture or music or intellectual life or something like that, that we'll be torn apart by it. And that, and that, you know, one of the things that I find myself wanting in intellectuals is, you know, and it's part of why I find your writing so exciting and, you know, I'm, I'm so kind of, and, and so invested in kind of spreading the word about it is that it feels like, you know, it feels like there's something enormous at stake and it's like, you know, somebody who does it right is keeping the is keeping the ship, you know, roughly towards the center of the channel and the people who do it wrong are sort of are sort of nudging it towards the towards the shoals or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I mean, you have to be crazy. I mean, when I should say when Yang was at his best, he could do this. I mean, he could like make you feel like that he could empathize with other oh. people because of the evil inside him. And the staging of that in the essay was itself a politics, right? Unbelievable. I mean, was, yeah. No, no. I mean, he was great. Um, and I mean, I, I really admire what he could do there and I, I hope he can do it again. I think when you're thinking about, you know, more broadly, these, these discussions we're having right now is we're trying to assimilate this, this radical eruption of, of, the transgender issue of transgender people, the increase in people who self-identify as trans, which is this massive 
sort of question for our society that we're trying to we're trying to integrate, we're trying to process. There is a desire on my part for voices, and they're not going to be me. There is a desire for my on my part for voices that will process, contain, engage with it in a way that ultimately help you know in a healthy way integrates it into the larger project of kind of multicultural liberalism or something like that. I, I should say, I mean, the the way that I think about this is like you know it right now happens to be the case and. I'm, I'm perhaps not the best equipped to think about the reasons why. This is the group that is kind of made to figure what I take to be like the constitutive tensions of modernity. So the last kind of 200, 250 years where, you know, at various moments, like it's women or Jews or male homosexuals or, you know, like figures who are um, imagined as exemplifying a kind of mix of freedom and determination that we find so problematic. Uh, and I think especially around like, sexual desire, right? Sexual desire is something that like it's it's both ours in a way that's been forced on us, but also ours in a way that we have to pick up and act on. Like it, it's sort of the privileged site of ethics and identity, like in its, in its double meaning of how I am identified, how I identify. Um, I mean, in a way that's really replaced religion, right? Like, you know, if, if you know, pre, like an early modern kind of problem is what do we do with people's different religious commitments? How can we contain them? Now something like, which is also a kind of problem of I'm called by God, but also I choose to answer the call, right? There's this weird, it, it's hard for us to think about this as, as free or not free. Now for us, like sexuality and, and you know, identification around, you know, sex and gender uh, is, is filling a lot of that role. Or, I mean, race also appears in this weird mix of how we are determined, but also how we, you know, uh, choose to use our freedom. I, I should say, right, I mean, yeah, what, what I want to do in part, like, you know, I, I don't know that I even want to play the role of the liberal, although this is, I guess, we're in, in the course of writing in the last three years, like in public, I have maybe landed on um, performing liberalism. But I, I do, each time I write, want to be willing to like put that at risk again, right? I don't want to think of that as a real enduring commitment because there have been certainly moments in the last several years where I felt like, well, what if we did just, you know, let it all burn down or, you know, wouldn't it be better if yeah. you know, we had some uh, illiberal regime to sort things out? I mean, I think if you, if you can't feel that as a real possibility, then your liberalism isn't worth much because liberalism is never going to be anyone's first choice it's not that great. The only reason it could have an appeal is that you can really feel, I think, within yourself, the pull of some illiberal alternative. I mean, this is what, you know, for instance, someone like Sora Bamari or Patrick Deneen, you know, their critiques of liberalism, whether, I mean, Deneen used to be doing this localist front porch republic shit, and now I guess he's on board with the, you know, the Catholic empire. Um, <laughs> but... Oh, right. And you, I mean, your, your own uh, profile of, of, of Poppin, right? Um, who's, you know, sort of in a similar, I mean, I wish these people would admit, like, I have crazy power fantasies. Yeah. You know, I yeah. want to send my enemies to hell. I imagine, you know, throwing them into the pit and laughing while I do well, it. You know, True at least has access to, to that. I mean, I would, I would, I would co-sign on your notion that that is kind of a sort of fundamentally important in kind of the liberal project. I think I would, I'm not sure differ, but I would add like, I don't think it's ever going to be the vast majority of people who operate in a liberal society who are kind of staging that drama between, you know, the call of the illiberal 
and, and the liberal, but I think that that probably a, a kind of more or less functioning liberal society depends on a certain number of people in key roles doing that. You know, are, as I said, artists, intellectuals, you know, comics, musicians, like, like it needs to be staged for all of us. It's not that we don't participate in it, but we are not, you know, it's not, the average person is not the, does not need to be enacting a kind of profound drama of that in order for liberal society. And, and, and if, if they were, then it would actually be much more appealing to the Deneens and the Amaris. It's precisely that they're not, that they find right. there's, so. There's un- not enough drama. There's I mean, not enough drama. Someone like Amari right. who has converted to four different things, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, and I have to go in a minute. Where is she going to be five or 10 years from now? Like predict the trajectory Oh, Lord. So, I mean, I, I, one, I hope there's a reality show where it's Amari, uh, Rod Dreher, her, and uh, maybe that Ollie London or Milo Yiannopoulos. So, serial converters. Yeah. Because um, I think the thing, that for me, the important thing about Chu is like, you know, that there's the staging of like the, the uh, you know, transition. But then there's, again, more recently, there's the becoming Asian. Right. Um, so I, I think there will be at least a third thing because I, I don't think the Asian thing has generated that much press for her. It hasn't been as uh, been as successful. That market maybe is a little more crowded. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's always you can always find Jesus. Um, you can convert to Judaism. You can do the Martha Nussbaum. You know, she, she's gotten a lot of mileage out of that. Uh, again, you people have enough problems. I wouldn't wish that on you. Uh yeah, there's the going right, you know, there's always, yeah, there's, yeah. there's lots of, uh, lots of avenues. The, the challenge would be who can come up with the most interesting new, new chapter it. of their lives. Yeah. The most surprising, <laughs> convincing, you know, it's got, they have to believe it. In a better world, like some, some like producer at like the Cartoon Network would hear this discussion and be like, you know what, we're, like, we're not going to get them to actually do that, but we can do a, like animated version of it, like we can slightly script. fictionalized. Slightly, you know, I'm right, sure right. the lawyers we can, can have a look at we it. We can script it, right? Exactly. Uh, all right, Blake. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having us. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah, all right, I'll bring you back. I'm going right. to bring you back to discuss other, maybe Rod or something like that. <laughs> I look forward. Maybe between us and three other people, we can read his entire corpus and have a. That, it, it, would, it would be a big project, but you know, one can dream. Yeah. Uh, have a good afternoon. All right. See you, Blake. This was an episode of Eminent Americans, the podcast. If you liked the podcast, be sure to check out and subscribe to my Substack, my newsletter, also called Eminent Americans. Thanks to my producer, Nick Worthen, and to all the friends and comrades who are subscribers, paid and free. This is genuinely a labor of love for me, and I am really grateful to everyone who's joining me in that uh, as a listener, subscriber, commenter, hater, whatever role you feel called upon to fill. Feel free to email me with thoughts and questions at djops at gmail.com. That is D as in Daniel, J as in James, and ops with two Ps. Hope uh, you have a good day, evening, morning, whatever space and time you happen to be in, and hopefully I'll be back at you with another episode soon. Thanks.